All right, folks, welcome back. My name is Jake Wood. I'm the host of the Rising Tide podcast. Uh, welcome to the podcast where we seek to explore how people, companies, and nonprofits can lead lives of purpose and lead them well. Really excited for today's episode because uh, we're talking to a longtime friend, uh, colleague from the space, someone with very familiar and similar cir uh, circumstances and experience as myself. Uh, Nishant Roy is the Chief Communications and Impact Officer at Chobani. The, the iconic yogurt company founded by Kurdish immigrant Hamdi Urukaya. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Chobani and the impact that it's having both through uh, its philanthropy, but also just the everyday decisions that it's making uh, as it runs its business and impacts its people. Um, prior to Chobani, Nishant served as a special advisor to the administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, also known as USAID. It was in this capacity that we first crossed paths uh, since I was running Team Rubicon at the time. And we found ourselves often uh, in the same disaster zones around the world, or at least debriefing them uh, in bars after the fact. Um, but his life of service began even before USAID uh, as an enlisted airman in the U.S. Air Force with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think it was kind of those shared experiences and taking those forward into disaster zones that really had Nishant and I uh, bonding. So uh, we were just kind of talking about this before we hit record. Um, so we met at a bar, right? <laughs> yes, we, we did. We did. As all good people should. <laughs> as, all, as all good people should. I, you know, it was really interesting. It was probably, I would guess, 2012 or 2013. You know, Team Rubicon was two or three years old. Um, you know, we'd gotten our start after the Haiti earthquake in 2010, but I think it was right after uh, the cyclone. Uh, cyclone. Uh, oh, I'm totally blank on the name right now. Hit the Philippines in Tacloban, yeah. 2013. Uh, that we probably crossed paths and really started talking, um, kind of brass tacks about how uh, you know we were using military uh, experience to to bring those resources and skills to bear in disaster zones. Um, Man, well, first of all, thank you for for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I will say, with all the great things that you said to describe me or in my, in the opener, I'm still not nearly as handsome as you are. So okay. I'm working very, every day and to hopefully do something. Very inappropriate. <laughs> very inappropriate. Um, well, listen. Let's let's. I don't know. You have so many interesting parts of your resume that I think people would be interested in 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 learning. I. One of the things I think is interesting is, so you go to the Air Force, right? And I would love to talk a little bit about what you did there, but you, you know, you got these tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, you get out, you go to college, you're working at Goldman Sachs and you decide, you know what, I'm going to go to USAID. Kind of what, what, what was it that, that led you onto that kind of that career pivot there? Yeah, it's a bit random from that perspective. Uh, it's 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 really funny. I feel like a lot of my life trajectory, career trajectory has been based off of relationships and mission. Uh, and, you know, I, I leave the military, I start working at the uh, at the Clinton Foundation, I interned there initially, and then I start mm -hmm. working there a little bit. And I come to this decision point where do I stay working in the non for profit space? Or do I go off and work in the private sector? And I got some early advice in my life that I should go and engage in the private sector and understand how business works and operates, because ultimately that will lead to more sustainable and scalable programming over some period of time. And that will really cause impact to, to hit a new level um, and build real, real capacity on the ground. So I, I decided to take that advice, go into Goldman. I was there for three years in the midst of the financial crisis, learned a ton in the process. And a good friend of mine uh, calls me up and he says, hey, Nishant, remember that advice you got about learning about the private sector and then applying those skills to the public sector? Well, I have this unique opportunity. I'm joining the federal government under this new president, uh, President Obama. I'm gonna be the chief scientist at the US Department of Ag. How about you come over and work with me? And I said, well, and what would I do? Uh, I don't, what do I, I don't know nothing about ag. <laughs> and, and he says, uh, he says, his name is Raj Shah. And he says to me, hey, Nishant, it's okay. You'll learn in the process. He's like, I'm a medical doctor by training, but I learned ag myself when I was at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. You can come over and let's do really good things together. So mm. I go and join him and no more than say four to six months, yeah, four months later, uh, President Obama then nominates Raj to go run the US Agency for International Development. 
and uh, and he and Raj then turns to me and he says, "Well, you're going to come with me now to aid." So that was that was my start into government, and then I, it kind of continued from there. Yeah, that's crazy. And, and and you know, Raj now I think is president of the Rockefeller Foundation. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Really, really interesting uh, career journey for him as well. So let's let's actually let's rewind the clock even more. We're going to come back to AID. Um, the decision to join the Air Force. Um, did you join right out of high school? Why the Why the Air Force? What you do in the Air Force? Talk to me about that. Uh, I I came to this conclusion that I need to go join the military because I didn't take high school as seriously as I probably should have. Oh, is that uh, right? That's, that's <laughs> the reason. Okay. And um, my grandfather, he, my family, they're all immigrants from India. Uh, they immigrated here in 1979. Uh, my grandfather had done some work with the Royal Air Force when the British had taken over India and uh, mm. the Royal Air Force had a lot of his assets on the ground. Um, so he always talked to me about what it meant uh, to engage with folks from the Royal Air Force and the Indian Air Force, et cetera. Um, so that kind of, I think, planted the seed really early in my life. Uh, and then when I kind of came to this conclusion that, hey, I need a little bit more discipline. I want to pay for college on my own. I want to go travel the world. Um, my family's immigrated here and they really are off and hitting the ground running hard and truly living the American dream. I mean, my dad uh, came here with just a few hundred dollars in his pocket and uh, in the mid 90s had created a, a million dollar business. I mean, wow. only only in America can you have that yeah. level of opportunity and growth and mobility and whatnot. So I said, you know what, there's a lot that this country has offered my family. Um, there's a lot that I appreciate about the military culture mindset, um, that, and I, and I feel like I need some discipline and I want to travel and I want to pay for things on my own. I, um, I kind of came to the conclusion that I'm going to go serve. So I go to my father, uh, I was raised by just, just my dad and, uh, my dad says, okay, well, what, um, what branch and why the military? And I, and I kind of walk him through my rationale of why the military he said, okay, here's the deal I'll make with you. We're going to invite all the recruiters over to our place. And then I want to hear every one of them out. And then you make the uh, the decision that you want. So I had and a dad ran an RFP for your military enlistment. He, he legitimately ran an RFP. It was, it was great. Like, <laughs> and I had a bias, by the way, my bias was to go join the Marine Corps, uh, hands down the coolest uniforms, uh, really like it's really, um, you know, glamorized in, in media and glamorized in the press and uh, and in movies and so forth. And I'm like, I want to do that. Uh, and um, and then after learning the history, by the way, of just the Marine Corps, I was like, I 100% want to go in because they're like the first ones to go in yeah. uh, in any kind of kinetic environment. So I'm, I'm, I have a bias right off the bat. My dad hears out all the recruiters after, during this RFP process narrows it down for me to just two branches, the Army, sorry, the, uh, the Navy and the Air Force. Uh, and why the Navy and the Air Force? Well, like the good South Asians that we are and very focused on education, he says, uh, these two branches are gonna have, allow for more fungible skills into the private sector. And I think this is gonna be really beneficial to you in the long term. Already, I'm already kind of going against his wishes to go join uh mm -hmm. the the service he's like you should just be going to academia uh but instead he says uh, I, I that was our compromise at the end of the day and so we landed on the air force because uh, of i think my grandfather and hearing some of those stories early yeah. on in his life well your dad's a smart man and so what so what'd you end up doing in the air force so i did a job called security forces uh we do um air-based ground defense uh you think of uh deployments into different countries in the place like Iraq, for instance, we had taken over uh, old Ba'athist regime or old Iraqi National Revolutionary Guard bases uh, that have runways and so forth. So what the security forces does is, is they're like the light infantry of the United States Air Force. They protect that base, but they also protect the assets like the aircrafts to make sure that nobody compromises them in any way, shape or form. And if you think about where an aircraft goes in some of these places, a lot of them are based in places outside of the theater of operation. Um, when they come into the theater of operation, they need a place to land. You need somebody on the ground that's going to be out there to defend that aircraft or some of those assets. 
Um, mm -hmm. So it's not just our aircraft, but it's also uh, some of our nuclear weapons or ICBMs, et cetera. So it's, it was a, yeah. it was an awesome, awesome job. I learned a ton, not only about uh, teamwork, of course, which you learn across, of course, throughout the military, but you just learn a ton about weaponry and things you would not expect out of the United States Air Force. Sure. And, I, and, you know, listen, you've had an interesting career focus on impact and global development since then. So I'm, I'm curious, was a was a seed planted for you being in places like Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan and seeing the need for that international development? Like, was that was that fundamental to your journey to where you are today or where you ended up at USAID? Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure it was for you as well. I would say for me, um, when I got to when I got to Afghanistan and then subsequently Iraq, uh, I'm looking at I was looking around and I was engaging with the local population and uh, it, I had traveled a ton growing up to India and other places across the world, but never to this part of the world, uh, never to Iraq or Afghanistan or any of these places. And engaging with the the folks over there. Um, I just learned a ton about their culture. I learned a ton about the values, this history. And uh, I thought to myself, well, wow, if only some entity or some actor were to come in and, and get people to sit at the table and make some thoughtful decisions for their people, somebody that would uh, invest in infrastructure because that would help improve overall livelihoods or the delivery of basic services, then certainly this could be the trajectory uh, in which you could see some sense of progress. Now, later as I progressed, I'm like, well, that's a very American centric approach to things, but uh, certainly it's been the thesis as to how even the US government and other governments have thought about progress across the world. You, uh, you look at helping to promote uh, livelihoods and with the, uh, promotion of improving livelihoods and people earning more money that's going to generate a demand for better services and uh, better uh, support for uh, health outcomes and education outcomes and so forth. So that I think started the, uh, the that was the genesis or the speed, the, the, the seed, if you will, that germinated into me then later, later working in the USAID. Yeah, I, I know I, I often share with people that my experience in Iraq and Afghanistan was fundamental to shaping my worldview. You know, you you kind of started to speak about it, but that you know, the moment you find yourself or you, that it clicks in your head that the the intersection of economic opportunity or lack thereof, poverty, illiteracy and kind of the concentric circles there then with extremism, uh, terrorism, um, gender-based violence. It, it was it was so fundamental to shifting my view of the world, my view or perspective on America's role in the world um, that obviously has continued to define everything that I've done for the last 15 years. Um, sounds like it was very similar to you. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about what you did then after. So we can kind of fast forward through some of the the simpler things you go to college you get you know you major in economics because you're a smarty pants you spend time at the clinton foundation you're at goldman sachs you decide you don't want to sell your soul to wall street anymore and you end up at usaid um what types of programs were you working on there so when i initially got into aid um it it, it progressed my career i would say um with not only responsibilities but also the depth of the types of programs that i was engaging in and so when I first got there, um, we were there for no more than a week, uh, Jake, when the Haiti earthquake happened, yeah. um, which obviously you and uh, you know Team Rubicon know extremely, extremely well. And, and thank you for your service, by the way, um, and not only creating Team Rubicon, but then mobilizing uh, folks like ourselves that had served time in the military to use our skills to do good in the world. Um, I, I, I would say, First, it was the Haiti earthquake. Um, Raj, who's the the administrator at the time, said, "Look, I don't know anybody here. Um, you're somebody that's a known entity to me." He gave me a sat phone, put me on a plane, and I lived in Haiti for about three months. Oh. And I, every night, I was spending time with the ambassador as well as the uh, uh, the three star general, uh, General Keen. Um, from Southcom, and we were we were truly like a national security kind of like triumphant, uh, where 
you have development, diplomacy, and defense. And we were thinking about holistically, how are we deploying um, assets and how are we moving the needle on what's happening with water, sanitation, shelter, access to food, et cetera. So I got to learn really quickly in my, in my first few steps at aid, first few days of aid, um, just how our agency interacts with this kind of multi-donor system, how it interacts with other entities and assets that exist within the U.S. government, um, and, and then how we interact with other NGOs. And then I would say taking those learnings, uh, I was able to then apply them to creating more kind of sustained programming. So what USAID lacked at that point in time was a true policy function. And what we subsequently lacked was a budget function. And mm -hmm. I was really proud to go work with the team um, to kind of reestablish that functionality within USAID, where we could be far more thoughtful with the taxpayer dollars that we were uh, had in our custody. And we can think about how to deploy capital uh, to really move the needle in the national security strategy to really serve as a pillar and a partner to the Defense Department as well as the State Department. I, you know, I think for a lot of listeners, you know, a lot of people that listen are, um, you know, folks that work in corporate social responsibility, um, a lot of other people that are just more thoughtful members of the community, philanthropists. Um, I, I think for a lot of people, though, they struggle to wrap their head around the justification for the U.S. government spending taxpayer dollars, as you said, on these international development projects. From your perspective, like what's the argument for it? Right. What, what are the outcomes that we can hope to achieve by you know, sending this money overseas to places in sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia, wherever it might be in between? Yeah, I actually took a very cynical approach to why we were doing the job that we were doing. And, and so, in fact, I was like reading books like Dead Aid and, you know, mm. you talk about the number of NGOs or the number of multi-donor uh, partners that have deployed capital to parts of Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia and other places across the world where you weren't necessarily getting better and improved outcomes. Well, there was a, there's a few arguments I think to be made uh, in favor of putting more capital towards aid and, and promoting better uh, development programming. One, I think we saw from the pandemic today that we're, we live in a far more integrated uh, and interwoven uh, world than we ever thought. People talked about how that is the case, but I think we truly all felt it across the 100 plus nations across this world um, of what this virus did and how it just passed all these different uh, borders. It, it didn't, it, it, it touched on so many different um, economic and socioeconomic classes, et cetera, but we still needed a common solution in which to go attack this kind of common enemy and an and investment in um, healthcare, global health in particular, uh, coming from the World Health Organization or coming specifically from the science that was developed here in the United States from Pfizer and Moderna, uh, we, we were able to use that technology to truly stem the tide and, and, and spread really of, of, of COVID and, and truly address it. So I would say first and foremost, um, it's, it's, it's understanding that we are all very much interconnected uh, two is coming, picking, thinking about this again from a cynical perspective. Why was I in Iraq? Why was I in Afghanistan? Was it because there was a breakdown in systems? Was there a breakdown in governance? Was there a breakdown in ec economic mobility for, for many? And um, just thinking about that root cause and what drove it uh, had me really think about what was the programming that we were doing at AID and how were we promoting livelihoods, economic livelihoods in other countries that would allow then for us to become trading partners with them? And that's actually going to be really good from a business perspective. South Korea is one of the best examples in which um, it was a large actually recipient of donations or aid from the United States and has now one of the biggest trading partners for the United States. And we you see a lot of reliance in and uh, technology and, and uh, innovation, et cetera, between our two nations. Um, I would say the other piece from the defense perspective, just to, again, to think about this from a very cynical approach, we, we thought about, if you think about kinetic environments and particularly in parts of Africa and the Sahel, um, you look at what are the biggest drivers of 
kinetic environments in, the, in that location with Al-Shabaab and some of these other kind of terrorist groups. It's lack of access to simple things, resources like water or, or lack of access to food. And could that have been prevented? And 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 could you know could this kinetic environment put it could have been prevented? And certainly, if there's greater access to food, greater access to water, and other resources, we could have certainly you know stemmed the tide of violence, extreme violence in in those countries. Or, um, you know, I I I'm fun, I fundamentally do believe that, and I think we even boil it down at one point in time to the stats of how much you're funding in defense, how much you're funding in uh, in development. And we said that for every dollar that you actually put towards development, that's actually $7 that you save on bullets, buying yeah. bullets. And you, and you save on American treasure, which is our people. So Yeah. Well, and, and you know, General Mattis, who nobody I think is going to call a pacifist, I think said when uh, President Trump was threatening to cut the State Department budget, that he says, if you, if you cut State Department's budget, I'm going to need more bullets. Um, yeah. I, I, I agree, right? Like, you know, we young men who have positive economic prospects do not become radicalized as easily as frequently um, as those who have zero economic prospects um, and are you know turning to some radical ideology uh, in search of meaning in search of purpose um, I think we've seen that play out time and time again um, okay I don't want this to be a, a policy wonk interview let's talk about Chobani I, I think that's what most people are probably interested in so you spend you spend a decent amount of time at USAID, do some good work. You go to, you know, some of the craziest uh, humanitarian catastrophes of the last, you know, 100 years, if you're talking about the Haiti earthquake. Um, and you get plucked to be Hamdi's chief of staff. That's a pretty plum assignment. So how'd this come about? It is the most random way in which I think to get a job, but it's, I will give a shout out to LinkedIn. It's um, oh, really the job was not advertised. Uh, I all I had done was kind of updated my profile, and I and Jake by all full admission. I I don't think I have the most like robust uh, LinkedIn profile, um, but I get a I get a note, an email note from uh, the folks here at Jabani, and they said, "Hey, your background's interesting. It's quite eclectic. Our founder would love to spend a few moments with you." And uh, so I said, "Okay, sure, why not?" Uh, and I, I go and meet with Hamdi and he starts asking me about my time in Afghanistan, my time in Iraq, uh, what I was doing with this family office that I was working in, um, how I think about, um, uh, you know, organizing forces with so many different competing demands. Uh, and he, uh, he's, after about three months of him asking me different kind of problem sets, he finally says, Hey, do you want to come work here? And I said, to, to do what? <laughs> and he said, to be my chief of staff. And so I, uh, I said, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I genuinely had fallen in love with how um, Hamdi thinks about business and philanthropy and life. Like everything is very much interlinked. Uh, he does want to continue to use kind of business as a force for good. And that was super inspiring. And as a byproduct of it all, I actually fell in love with Shabani because it's a manifestation of some of his thoughts and ideologies about how to actually bring the power of business to be a force for good. Um, so that was my kind of journey on even how I got here and started operating as a chief of staff for him. Well, that's that's pretty remarkable. I, I actually did not know it was that random. Um, yeah, that is, that's, that's, uh, Quite the coincidence. Um, so let's level set this for everybody. So for, for listeners out there who aren't as familiar with Hamdi's story. So Hamdi's a, 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 a Turkish Kurdish immigrant, the son of dairy farmers, correct? In the, in a rural part of Turkey, he yeah. comes to the United States, starts a cheese import company, a feta cheese import company, correct? That's right. Um, and then it's, I, you know, by the bio that I read, you know, it's it's struggling, but it's it's not going under, but it's not really lighting the world on fire. And then he sees an ad for a former craft uh, company yogurt factory, and he decides against the advice of everybody else to buy it and launch a yogurt brand. Is that more or less accurate? That's actually that's absolutely accurate. So then over the like the last 20 years, 15 or 20 years, he's become the number one yogurt in the world, 
or at least in the United States. And yeah, right? definitely in the United States and Australia. So it's 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 pretty it's pretty remarkable. He's redefined the category and I think defied a lot of expectations. But I think what's at least for me most inspiring is the way that he's built the company, the the wages that he uh, pays his people. I, I think if I remember correctly, when Chobani went public, um, he gave every single employee equity right before they went public. And if I remember the story right, I kind of remember reading this article. It's probably been ten years, but. It was some extraordinary length that he had to go to do it because of the way that the, you know, the articles of incorporation had been written. He had to bring in all these attorneys and advisors and everybody was saying, hey, this isn't worth it. You shouldn't do this. It's going to cost you so much money to do it. And said, no, I want everybody to be an owner. Um, Just, you know, really pretty remarkable. I guess, I don't know. Talk about Hamdi from your perspective, having been his chief of staff, now being a part of his executive team. Um, What's it like? What's he like? He is, uh, by the way, only one correction to your, uh, to your facts is that um, he did absolutely give out equity to, to folks, uh, but we have not gone public. So oh, okay. uh, that's, uh, but I'll, 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 I'll speak on that as well. But the, okay. um, um, yeah, he, he, what can I say about Hamdi? He is, when if you watch an interview with Hamdi, that is truly him. It's not a facade. He is very real, very down to earth. Cares a great deal about his community. He is, you know, he often says he's a he's a farmer or a factory worker at at his core, and mm. has kind of like built and learned things about corporate America, etc. In, in the process, he is. Um, you know, when he sees an injustice, he wants to go out there and use the power of what he's built to go and address it, right? He doesn't try to create anything brand new uh, to go out there, but he wants to use the infrastructure that he's got and figure out, okay, how can I play some role in which I can make a difference? Um, That doesn't take away from what I'm trying to do in terms of uh, creating, you know, good food for for the masses here in, in in the United States. You know, just to give you an example of like, the type of way he thinks about food and like why he even created Chobani in the first place was he looked at uh, the average cup of yogurt around 2005, 2007, and the average cup of yogurt had north of 25 to 30 grams of sugar in just a single serving. Wow. It was priced uh, in the convenience stores and, and whatnot around like four or five bucks for a cup. And he's like, wow, that is just completely wrong. Uh, this is a staple that existed where I grew up and I can sell this for, for a better price, deliver far more value to the consumer by packing it up with the appropriate amount of protein and magnesium, potassium, all the natural ingredients that you would expect. And he's like, that's the way in which to deliver a product to the masses. And that's what business should be doing is like delivering something that's going to truly enrich your life and make you better. Because when you actually eat something and you have the appropriate amount of protein, then you can go off and do the other good things that you've been trained to go do in, in, you know, in, in your day, in your life, et cetera. So this is our kind of small way in which to help enrich people's lives. And, and we did that steadily by reducing the amount of sugar that you see in yogurts today. Uh, we did that steadily by increasing the amount of protein um, and finding a way in which to introduce fiber and, and other kind of ingredients. But so it started off with our product. And then I think it's grown from there to the people that we hire into the business. Like we've been really well known for hiring refugees. Uh, you know, at one point in time, I think we could say like 30% of our business was immigrants and refugees, wow. uh, but pe- people change their legal status. So I can't say that anymore. Uh, but we still continue to hire like really, really thoughtful folks from all over the world to come here to two communities in particular in central New York and Otsego and Chenego County, like in, and, and the other in, um, in Twin Falls, Idaho. And uh, we get them to come and they come and operate in our plants. That's where the majority of our workforce is. It's like over 70% of our workforce is in those two communities. Um, but, you know, again, how does Hamdi think about wanting to continue to do good? I think it's, it's producing that product. And with the money that we make, he's like, how do we now continue to invest back in our communities? And so we've decided to put together, um, uh, you know, we've decided to put together 
money towards buying ambulances uh, and, mm. and supporting our local firehouse by rebuilding it fully. Uh, our our plant upstate is actually really close to Cooperstown, and oh. we said let's make a let's make a baseball field for the community that's better than the one that's in Cooperstown, you know, yeah. baseball hall of fame. Yeah, and so we did that. Uh, um, so we continue to find ways in which to kind of invest back, not only in the community in which we operate, but then also our people. And um, so it's 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 really inspiring because people talk about that as as an aspiration for their businesses or the, an aspiration for um, how they want to pivot their business. Uh, and here we have the opportunity to go do it from the ground up with partnership. Uh, of, with with our people, you know, and and they kind of set the standard and the direction of where they want to go. I, I'm I'm curious though. Th th that last point is actually what I wanted to interject with. It's you know, did Hamdi and Chobani have to earn the right to be able to give back in that way, or was it baked in from the beginning? Because I, th I think you're right. There's a lot of companies that that aspire to do more, that aspire to have more impact, but it's maybe hard to to drive toward that when you're losing money. Um, you are struggling to pay your vendors or, you know, make payroll, I guess, how, how, how did this look? We know what it looks like today. How did this look 10 years ago? Yeah, the, the goals were probably loftier. Uh, I think, I think we, we, we were saying something to the effect of like, Hey, we're going to, uh, give away some portion of the proceeds to towards charity and, and so forth. And then what charity was it? And I think, uh, Hamdi had shared with me that at one point in time he would get, a litany of note, notes uh, from folks saying like, I need help with uh, supporting uh, my local, um, my local, you know, shelter, my local, my, and supporting dogs or supporting whatever. And every one of them, he was inspired to want to go do something, but there was no discipline or no framework as an organization, how best to go approach it. I think over time, he's, found a way in which to create a framework and and be thoughtful about and purposeful about the delivery of it. Uh, give you just one example. He's got his own personal philanthropy that's focused on hiring refugees because his mm -hmm. thesis is, is that the moment that a refugee gets a job is the moment that they're no longer considered a refugee. Well, the refugee crisis is massive, right? And yeah. across the entire world. And it touches on so many different sectors, as you know, right? There's there's the shelter of refugees, there's the education of refugees, the healthcare of refugees. There, so many different facets of it, and you can have so much mission creep on what it means to truly deliver impact. Well, Hamdi said, my value proposition is I work in business. I have the ability to connect with other CEOs on a, at a business level. Well, why don't I use that power and that connection? and stay very focused and in my lane um, on delivering impact to refugees by helping them get employed by uh, businesses. And so he grew a coalition of just five businesses to now over 300 plus wow. uh, across the world. Uh, and it's, the big, it's some of the biggest businesses to even some small businesses that are out there, um, that are out there making commitments to go out there and hire refugees. I think a lot of folks to your point, Jake, uh, a lot of businesses have their heart in the right place. They want to go and do these really phenomenal things as it relates to impact, not only for themselves, but for their employees and give people a sense of perspective uh, mm -hmm. as to what to be grateful for because they get to go see their families at night. They get to appreciate that they have a roof over their head, whereas the refugee that just came over probably escaped religious persecution or political retribution or some sort of effects from climate or what have you. Um, it gives a lot of perspective and you want to have that in your business. Um, so it's, it's nice to deliver impact. Sorry to interrupt. Is, does that, how much does that matter to the employee in, in, you know, at the factory in Idaho? Do you think that that's, do you think that they are inspired by that or is it just a job? Does, is this more than a job to them? Do they take a sense of pride and identity and, and working for Chobani because of all these great works. What do you, what, what's the sense it, you get? It is, it is a massive, massive sense of pride. It is a real differentiation. I mean, this goes beyond, um, you know, political lines. If you even, if you want to put it that way, you think about the two communities that we're operating in, in upstate New York and in Twin Falls, Idaho, they have a very different perspective 
than the folks that sit in Soho, Manhattan, uh, on on the politics of things, right? When it comes down to immigration, when it comes down to a lot of these other things. But when pressed, or when even attacked, like we have been for living our values and hiring folks that come from different backgrounds and getting them into the business and helping them get uh, a leg up here in this country. Um, they're the, it's our people that have actually come out there and the people in the community, more, most importantly, before the politicians, before the other big kind of other folks, it's those folks that are out there and, and that speak out in support of like the values that Giovanni kind of lives by. Um, so we, we've been, we've been tested on this and I, and I, I know for a fact that our people and our communities are largely supportive of, of these initiatives and hiring diverse talent, investing back in the community, you know, having that impact from that perspective. And they want to continue to do it each, each year. We actually vote on two projects, uh, you know, one in each location uh, where we get to go make a, a real, we vote as a, as an employee base on where we want to have impact. And it's some big infrastructure project. Some, sometimes they want to do like a, a, a trailhead. Sometimes they want to go and invest in a museum in the local community. So it's, these are things that are super important. And it also brings a sense of pride when you come to work and you're like, Hey, I work at Chibani and we did this for the community and we did this for the people. So I, I, I love hearing that. I mean, I, I, it wasn't a trap question. I, I can imagine the, the, you know, the, the political climate in both of those locations are starkly different from where you're sitting in Soho, Manhattan. And I think, you know, particularly when you talk about issues that are as politicized as you know hot button as immigration or refugees um it's very easy to to demonize and dehumanize someone when you are not sitting across from them or when you're not working alongside them on an assembly line or eating next to them uh, in a lunchroom um in the moment that you can humanize those people who have been through so much i mean the suffering the human suffering that these many of these uh refugees uh, experience before ending up on our shores is, is unfathomable to, to most Americans, regardless of where they are socioeconomically. Um, and, and so I just, I, I love that that's the reaction that they have. And I mean, one thing I'll point out is it's probably easy for them to not cast stones when they're also making twice the local minimum wage. I, I, you know, that was one of the other topics I wanted to bring up. It's not just that, you know, Hamdi and Chobani are taking all this money and, and sending it out to, you know, charities around the world. I mean, this is after you're paying your people an actual living wage. Um, how, how can you maybe shed some light on the decision and the rationale behind that? I can imagine what you're going to say, but then you know, what are the outcomes that the company experiences uh, by paying people what you are? Yeah. And thank you for bringing it up. Uh, you should be, you should be doing my job. I, I so <laughs> they, they, they are um, what Jake's kind of referring to is, uh, Chibani recently uh, made a commitment. In addition to the wonderful things that we continue to do for our employees, we just recently made a commitment to go pay uh, $20, $20 an hour as a minimum wage uh, when joining Chibani. Um, so these are folks that are literally uh, work, maybe had worked at McDonald's or some other place uh, just a week or two prior and have found an opportunity to come here to Chibani where they're getting uh, a $20 an hour wage, they're getting access to uh, 401k benefits, they're getting access to uh, healthcare, uh, they're getting access to um, childcare, which is a new investment for us. Um, so as we look and study what has happened with the workforce um, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, and then post-pandemic, um, you can't, we were considered mission essential uh, during the pandemic. So we were operating uh, while many had uh, gone home or, or weren't reporting to their offices, of course, for health reasons. And so um, as, as Chibani's workforce, over 70% of it was still reporting to the plant. Uh, we need to cr create guardrails, ways in which to go further support our folks while they were out there kind of in the front line, producing the food that we needed. You saw what happened at the grocery stores. There was massive lines. Yeah. Uh, and there was massive demand for cooking at home and getting, you know, more nutritious products, et cetera. So the, the brand's demand uh, was there. We needed to find a way in which to meet it. And I'm proud of the team to have come together and found a thoughtful way in which to 
come up with the safest way to go manufacture and deliver that food in the midst of it. Um, we not only paid our folks uh, and have now since gone up, you know, as you start to see inflation across the country, uh, we wanted to improve how much we're paying, uh, you know, on an hourly rate, but we also wanted to find ways in which we can get benefits to people. I think one of the big ones that we had were really well known for is having given the equity, like you mentioned earlier, Jake, like it's not yeah. quite, it's not quite common in, in manufacturing in particular to give equity ownership to the, the manufacturing base. But Hamdi always felt that, look, at, before we were workers together uh, and, and colleagues, and now we're partners. And mm. it's because we, we've achieved a certain level of success and this is just a rite of passage, candidly, for for a lot of those folks. So it's an it's been an investment back, not just in like these benefits that you see from a cash perspective, but it's also in equity. It's also in ways in which they have a pulse and a way in which to drive the business, also on an impact perspective, like we were saying earlier. Yeah, I love that. I, I love the employee-owned model. Um, and for people that are paying attention, you know, this is there, there's a lot of data and research that's starting to come around on. Uh, you know, the, the the positive outcomes that this generates. It's not just the right thing to do by way of, you know, sh literally sharing the wealth in success. But, you know, you look at KKR, arguably one of the more ruthless private equity firms uh, historically, one of the behemoths uh, on Wall Street. And they've got this new program that they're investing a lot of time and energy into called Ownership Works, um, with a great success story just from a couple of quarters ago with a uh, garage door manufacturing company that was kind of one of their initial pilot companies for this. They gave every single uh, employee at the company, including all the factory workers, um, equity in the deal when KKR took over. They just sold off the company, and they're they I mean they're literally minting millionaires out of out of these these factory workers. It's just it's unbelievable. But it's that shared purpose. You know, you you, you said it best how Hamdi phrased it. You know, we used to be coworkers, now we're partners. Um, I mean, there's tremendous value to be unlocked in that. So I, I just, I, I love, I love that. So let's, let's close here. We've probably got five, five more minutes left. You know, you're the chief communications and impact officer. I'm, you know, sounds like a fun job. You, know, you get to channel the energy of this iconic founder and CEO who is committed to giving back. I mean, not every head of impact or head of CSR is fortunate to work for a CEO who actually really cares, who actually wants to create that impact. Like, What's your day to day like? How do you actually drive that impact? Then how do you tell the story? It's a uh, great question. I, it, 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 I would say it starts with understanding who is Chobani and why do we do what we do. And uh, for Chobani, we started off being best known for the yogurt that we make, but then have since expanded into making oat milk and then coffee creamers. Uh, and we're continuing to innovate and create new products and platforms uh, to deliver to the masses. Again, we're trying to look at where the American consumer or where consumers in general have been um, sold ingredients, sold foods that are rich in preservatives or have been um, sold something that may be perceived as dairy, but is not. Um, and we want to find a way in which to disrupt and better and deliver better nutrition. So um, I would say first and foremost, it's starting with our product on a daily basis. We're, we're continuing to work with our R&D innovation team to find ways in which to deliver more nutrient rich products. Um, second, it's it's employing our folks, uh, like, like getting people from uh, all different backgrounds to come here and join us in our journey as we continue to grow our business. We have over um, you know, over 21% of the U.S. yogurt market. Uh, we have a path in which we want to continue to grow that. And as we continue to grow our business, we need to get really thoughtful talent to come in the door. And uh, and that's going to be representative of the customer base as we grow uh, our business. So we need to get people from all walks of life to kind of come in and join us in this journey. Um, and we're going to invest back in our folks in order to help them even get there. Um, I would say the third big piece of our pillar is sustainability. If we're if we're behaving as a as a food business, we really need to focus in. And I know that's kind of like a lofty thing when people say sustainability, but there are some real actions, some real projects that show really meaningful results across five pillars for us. And I would say that's on water, it's on emissions, it's on our single use plastic. Right? We deliver a natural product to the masses. 
And the only way, the best delivery mechanism in which to go deliver that natural product that's got live and active uh, cultures and probiotics is this kind of single use plastic cup. Well, we need to find better ways in which to package it and invest in that technology or find more thoughtful ways in which we're thinking about how to use that plastic and make it recyclable, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there's that piece. I would say the fourth uh, within that pillar is um, reducing our overall waste. So that means running the plants more efficiently and thinking about, um, and then finally, I would say, thinking about our diversity of our kind of supplier base. I mean, we got some really cool impact stuff where we saw a number of refugees actually that had left Colombia, uh, the country and have, had migrated into Venezuela. Um, we identified who the co-ops were, validated that they were paying them a thoughtful wage. They had good living conditions. We actually exclusively sourced mango and passion fruit uh, from uh, those farms and have created a skew actually called the Unstuck Batch. Uh, so we used the power of our products and the platform in which to go make sure that re we saw refugees actually getting hired, um, you know, in, in the process. We did the same thing with Operation Homefront, uh, which, you know, has done wonders for folks uh, like in our community, Jake, yep. uh, that are unfortunately suffering from inflation, right? You have this rise of, of food costs in this country and Operation Homefront's been doing a really remarkable job of getting debit cards out to military families as well as veteran families. Um, so we've been able to partner with them and use the platform. Again, we have this red, white, and blue yogurt, uh, which is coincidentally the best selling yogurt actually in the system. Hmm. It's a strawberry, blueberry, and vanilla. And hmm. we're able to get that, uh, we're able to get some real funds out to Operation Homefront in the process. And then I would say um, the last two pillars for us are related to addressing hunger. We're a food business. There's a lot of variables that go into addressing food insecurity and the social to kind of determinants of health in this country. Um, and for folks that may not know this, but the social determinants are uh, lack of access, you know, to transportation and housing and wages and access to food. Um, where we really feel like we can play a role in our value proposition uh, is improving food access. So we we found food banks, we found pantries, we found uh, schools, we found different ways in which to reach the populations in which we're operating in. And we're able to show in the curve that food insecurity is able to reduce actually in the communities in which we're operating. Now, we're gonna come up with more innovative models in which to go reach uh, uh, you know, more swaths of the population, but it's about making it sustainable and subsequently um, scalable. Yeah. That's remarkable. I mean, there's there's so much you're working on, but you know, as you said, uh, you know, you've got this massive platform. You've got the weight of uh, the market behind you. Um, you've got this, um, you know, charismatic and passionate CEO. It's 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 literally a, a perfect recipe to to creating impact. I know a lot of people that are listening out there. You know, you're working in the CSR space. You're working in the impact space. Some of you are on the nonprofit side. I think. Uh, at least for me, this was a, an illuminating conversation, but really only the tip of the iceberg. Um, I have I've read a, a lot on on Hamdi and the the Chobani story. I think it's it's as inspiring as it gets. And in many ways, you know, Nishant, when you were first sitting there talking about your own father, I you know I couldn't escape the parallels. Um, you know, coming to this country with a couple of nickels to rub together and, and creating something from nothing is it is the American dream. Um, so really appreciate you coming on here and sharing kind of your insider perspective. So for, for those of you listening, go out there, um, you know, Google this story. There are some incredible pieces out there written about it, um, probably pitched by our guest here um, and placed with those with those, uh, those magazines. But uh, anything that we didn't touch on that, that we should before we close out here, Nishant? I will say one last thing, which is uh, outside of just thanking you, Jake, for giving us the platform to go and talk. I know you have a lot of, uh, really thoughtful listeners, and this is a this is an audience in which we don't normally get to engage with. So I'm I'm super grateful to you for having set up the opportunity. Um, but I would say the one area in this country that uh, I know a lot of food businesses care a great deal about, and it's not just Chobani, is child hunger. There's nine million kids today in the United States that are food and nutrition insecure, and we need to find a way in which to go address it. Um, so as you hear about different 
partnerships. Uh, you hear about different models that are out there. I welcome, you know, a conversation. This is something that we care a great deal about at Chobani, and it's something that we're looking to uh, repurpose and pivot a lot of our funds to to really show some serious progress in the communities in which we're operating. Um, so I want to ask your audience if they can help us out with that, and and just thank you again for for giving us the platform in which to share this story. Well, absolutely. And before we go, um, I'm going to ask you to tell me your favorite uh, child hunger nonprofit because I'm going to make contribution on your behalf right now. So do you have a, you have one out there that's doing best in class work? I would say uh, we have a, actually we have a partnership right now with a non-for-profit called Adesia. Uh, they're actually largely funded by uh, USAID, UNICEF, and the World Food Program. And uh, what's really awesome about them is they have a plant in Rhode Island. And if you I've seen on TV or if you've seen across uh, the internet, there's a number of starving children that are suffering from acute malnutrition. And what that means is these kids may suffer from stunting of growth or they may not even make it past the age of five. And what this charity does, what Adesia does, is they produce a product called Plumpy Nut, which is a fortified peanut butter. Yep. And they've been able to get that successfully into the hands of millions of kids and save their lives. So uh, I would say that's the child hunger charity that I would want to call out. Uh, and yeah, I love it. I've I've heard of their work before. Um, as a as a uh, Marine infantryman, the the packet of peanut butter in the MRE was was the lifesaver. Right? It's so calorically dense. So I, I totally I, I get it. Uh, we're sending them a grant right now uh, on Groundswell, um, and I'll give them your name. Tell them you sent us their way. Um, Nishan, thank you for coming on. Uh, really appreciate it. Super insightful. Um, thank you again. And to all the listeners out there, uh, Nishant Roy, Chobani, look him up on LinkedIn. Find him, connect with him, pick his brain. Uh, there's a lot up there. So thanks again for, for coming on. Thank you, brother, for having me on. And thank you for doing what you do. You continue to do amazing things in the world uh, beyond just your Marine Corps service, beyond Team Rubicon. I mean, and Groundswell is a whole another way in which to mobilize uh, the private sector and so many other partners. And it's, it's amazing what you do. I, I can't wait to see uh, what comes of this. All right. Thanks again. Thank you.